Hello, I'm Dave and welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy Podcast. Today we bring you the second of three recordings from our Tragic Beginnings live event that took place at the Hackney Attic on the 17th of January. And now, here's Act 2 of Tragic Beginnings. What we do at Stand Up Tragedy is we get people to stand up on stage and do tragedy. It's a variety night basically with a, a sad undertone or overtone quite often. Tonight is Tragic Beginnings, which is... An interesting thing, really, in terms of tragedy, because tragic tragedies have tragic endings normally rather than <laughs> tragic beginnings. So I'm thinking that we might end up with much more happier endings, maybe, if we start sad. So we'll see how that goes. But be prepared for sadness, be prepared for happiness, be prepared for feelings and thoughts and all of those sorts of fun things to have. OK, let's see. Let's see how we're doing for this hello thing now. Hello, everybody! Good, good from tragic beginnings. We've got that, got that less tragic, that hello, that's great. Uh, so uh, I'm now going to introduce the first performer from the next act tonight. Uh, returning to our stage, I like to, to say that she is like a cross between a young Billy Bragg and a young Kate Nash, I guess. Um, both young. That's, that's, my, that's my assessment, uh, but she's even better than that. She, uh, so put your hands together, everybody, for Emily Capel! Hello. song's called uh, Brixton Prison. Red sore knuckles and tattoos across my back. I'm off to Brixton Prison, although I know I ain't done jack. And my mama writes me letters. I must get one each month. Well, this month I've had no letters. Maybe my mama's got the harm. Red saw knuckles and tattoos across my back. I'm off to Brixton Prison. Jack and my mama writes me letters I must get one each month Well, this month I had no letters Maybe my mama's got the hump Did she say that she'd be out with, with her mate Stella Or was she out late dressed like, like Cinderella My mama should have seen her face when I got home Standing right next to my papa They can have more I can't see the view out of the window Cause them bars in my face the tears fall from my eyelids And they get into place While I'm counting down the days Just like the guy above my bed But he's got seven years of coming Cause he shot a pistol right through someone Red saw knuckles and tattoos across my back I'm free from Brixton prison Cause my life is back on track And I walk across the courtyard Where those chains come loose round my feet And I can hear my people shouting It's the release of the notorious Emily Uh, the next song I'm going to sing is a song called The Strut. 
And usually when I, uh, when I, well, sometimes when I gig, I have a band behind me, but I've left them at home. Um, so it's just me. So this is usually a band song, but I'm going to do it acoustic because it's a bloody Friday. Um, so this song's called The Strut. <laughs> Thanks so much. I'm not a lover of shaking my hips. I can't get too low when I do this dip. But I've fallen hard for this new dance girl around. It's called the Strap Man, and it goes like this. I'm not a lady who can bust out the rumba. Or any chica who can cha-cha the salsa But I just cannot get enough Of this new dance here in the town It's called the Strut Man And it goes like this So everybody put your hands on your hips And everybody twist your feet like this So come on and get on up Do it to your camera, stop, do the strut Yeah, I think you're getting it do the strut, do the strut, do the strut. Now I see some girls, they get caught daggering. And I find that movement to be pretty staggering. But they are, there ain't no sluts trying to do the strut. Now they try, but they haven't got it. No, 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 oh, no, no, no. Now, there's no need for you to feel embarrassed I hear they're doing it down in Buckingham Palace So why not prove it to yourself Take your shoes off the shelf Do the strut, yeah, I think you're getting it Do the strut, do the strut, do the strut Now how do I know if you can keep the beat? We all know what guilty rhythms do to your feet So why not get on up, baby Try the strut, yeah, maybe you can do it with me Do the strut, do the strut, do the strut Do the strut, do the strut, do the strut, do the strut Thanks very much. <laughs> when, uh, when we sing that as a band, it's like the cha-cha slide part two. It's like the Macarena for the 2014 generation. Um, so this is the uh, stand-up for tragedy, and I don't really have any tragedy, but my EP is... My old EP is called the Who Killed Smiley Culture EP. And this EP that I'm working on now, which I've released actually, which is on my website, which you can get, it's www.emilycapel.com, but there's stuff knocking about at the back where you can pick it up. It's called the Who Framed Winston Silcott EP. And, uh, and this is a song from Who Killed Smiley Culture. So this is tragic. I don't know. Keep moving and rolling, the grind gets so near If they come a-knocking then I'll say you weren't here And I'm fucking cool man, cause I know the rock man With two snooker balls tied up in a sock man The real Slim Shady just stood up With one of his fingers on each hand up And the streets are now empty, but the popo's still low And there's me thinking, I'm so well, I am more qualified than Professor Green And that little ginger's got nothing on me So listen up, baby, to the things that I taught ya Who killed Smiley Culture? Well, it's alright for me 
Cause I'm not in the business of the lies you told Little Wayne and his missus of whipping the lovers you knew Couldn't hack it Just to sell stories of what's up his bracket While I look alright in them apple bottom jeans But the boots with the fur they did Nothing for me So listen up baby They're the things that you are Who killed Smiley culture West side I'm from the west side Where we'll set your party on fire West side I'm from the west side Where we'll set your night light I'll set it on fire I'm gonna set you on fire the girl you've met before she give it up then baby get on the floor and I'll be in my creepers and you can wear your sneakers, we'll eat more teasers and then we'll pray to Jesus no more this ain't like no other song you've heard today she give it up then baby throw it away Cause my baby drives a Cadillac It's deep blue when I sit in the back We drive to the river with the rooftop flat And when we get there we won't come back no more So I'll wait here for you rude boys to stop being rude And while I'm waiting Maybe you and I could write some tunes as the bombs the Beatles day Drop them, they fall down on my head I'll be in my new thread saying What did you expect? Show me some respect no more We ain't like no other band that's kicking back So why don't you guys buy our tracks? Because we are the perverts and we'll make your ears hurt Turn up the reverb and put us on your t-shirt Just sip the scissor, baby go berserk I see you in the desert, I sing like a cherub I'm just a big flirt, no more So I'll wait here for you rude boys to stop me And while I'm waiting, maybe you and I could get in the mood As the bombs to the Beatles, they drop then they fall down on my head I'll be in my new thread saying, what did you expect? Show me some respect no more I said no more I said no more I said no more Thanks very much <laughs> That's, uh, that's all I'm going to do. So thanks very much. Have a good night. Emily Capel, everyone. And uh, as she said, you can find her uh, music at www.emilycapel.com and uh, EP, who's, Who Killed Smiley Culture. Uh, spoiler alert, the police. Uh, or allegedly... Uh, Unless he stabbed himself in the heart, which, of course, is obviously what happened. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, a bit of tragedy there. Uh, and, uh, yeah, our next performer is a comedian who I saw at the excellent uh, new comedy night called See You Next Thursday, which abbreviates as CUNTH, uh, which is run by uh, the marvellous Charlie Harrison, who uh, is sometimes, uh, sometimes even hosts a stand-up tragedy when I, when I can't make it. So uh, that's how much we love that night. So, uh, it's, so you, can find, uh, you can find him uh, at www.davidvonjones.com, which means he is David Von Jones! <laughs> Thank you.
my my dog. So uh, I've got some punchlines, <laughs> without jokes. Punchline number one. So I said, you keep the parmesan. Punchline number two. You call that a cactus? Punchline number three. Eventually, we left the pub and I withdrew into my usual sense of self-loathing. <laughs> I've written some notes here. Uh, this is a joke about my problems with alcohol. Punchline number four. Don't get shirty with me. Uh, I've written some notes there. I like that phrase. It's clean. I'm bringing it back. I'm trying to think of a uh, show title if I want to do this show at Edinburgh. The best I could come up with so far is 157 punchlines with no jokes. Punchline number five. It's asparag us, not asparag you. I've written some notes here. This is a good comeback for anyone unwilling to share asparagus. So I want to talk about tragedy in Disney films and what we can learn from that. I'll give you an example. In Mulan, you see there's war that's tragic at the beginning to war, but we learn not to be sexist from it, don't we? It's a 4,000-year-old story. I'm glad humankind got that one out of the way. In, in Pocahontas, we, we see the rape of the Americas by the Europeans. This is tragic, but we learn to respect the environment a bit more, <laughs> don't we? It's a 400-year-old story. I'm glad we, glad we got that one out of the way. In Up... In up the tragedy is Mr. Mr. Frankens... I can't even remember his name. What's his name? Does anyone know his name? Okay. The guy's wife dies. And that's very tragic that his true love dies. But then we can, we can learn from that that it's sometimes dangerous to rip your house from its foundations using thousands of balloons and flying it to Venezuela in an attempt to land it on top of the world's tallest waterfall. Some of the lessons are more specific than others. The good thing about that one, though, is if you manage to do all that, if you manage to do all that, you actually end up with an airship full of talking dogs. So it's just a nice lesson. <laughs> Toy Story, not many people think Toy Story is tragic, but it is tragic. A character in Toy Story is very tragic. The magic eight ball in Toy Story, very tragic. You know, magic eight ball, it's like, it's the, it's the round, it's the, it's the oversized novelty ball that answers all of these questions about the universe. And this is a very sad figure in Toy Story. He's the oldest toy, designed in 1950. He's the wisest toy. He can answer any question. But it's so he can't move. He can't speak. He can't really do anything. He's only really acknowledged by the other toys when they shake him vigorously. And he actually ends up down the back of a desk. And no one cares. It's, it's tragic. And he's the only black guy in the film. <laughs> what are they trying to tell us with this? I think they're trying to tell us. I think they're trying to tell us if you see an old black man, shake him really hard and you might get some information out of him. That's served me quite well these last few years. Hercules. Hercules is very tragic, but it is my favourite film. Hercules. The interesting thing about Hercules, though, is the Greek government, the Greek government actually tried to ban it because of its lack of historical accuracy. Right? This is true. It's true. And this got me scared because I put a lot of stead in Disney films. I, I do put a lot of stead in this film. And I, I did some further research and I found out that Robin Hood wasn't actually a fox. What's more weird is I did, I did further research and I found out that Robin Hood didn't even exist. How can someone that didn't exist definitely not be a fox?
Punchline number six. Holocaust, my ass. I think the people against whale hunting should acknowledge the positive effect it has on the, the tragedy of rising sea levels. For every whale you take out of the ocean, that's like a whale-sized piece of Norfolk you can save. <laughs> it's whales or Norfolk. We have to make the decisions. It's like a summer holiday choice no one wants to make. <laughs> I hate animals. Really hate animals. They're sick. They sicken me. Animals. Given the opportunity, most animals will be incestuous. And I think that's why they look so strange. Bees have six legs. How many millions of years of fucking your sisters is that? It's fucking disgusting. I hate fish as well. Really hate fish. Really hate fish. It's not just because my dad was killed in a freak haddock incident. We actually all laugh about that now. Uh, no, no, I hate fish because they're stupid. They're stupid. But, but the thing about fish, we're not allowed to eat fish. We're not allowed to eat cod. We're told we can't eat cod. It's wrong to eat cod. But every other animal eats cod. Even cod eat cod. It's a cod eat cod world. Well, cods eat cods and dogs eat dogs. Just saying we should change it. Okay, it's more accurate. And the, the, the only reason to preserve this cod is for future people. Future people to eat cod. And I hate future people. I hate future people. They've got it so much better. They've got more films. They've got more books. They've got flying cars. I just want a piece of cod. I just, is that all right? Can I just have a piece of cod? In the future, teenagers will be able to wear like visors with any sort of pornography, fulfill all of their sexual fantasies as a teenager. My, my, the first five years of my, my sex life was spent in the Argos Editions catalogue, lingerie section. I just want a piece of cod. It doesn't make up for completely. There weren't even models half the time. Just panty pictures. I just want some cod. It doesn't make up for it, but... Punchline number seven. It's hepatite us. Not hepatite you. I've written some notes here. This is a good comeback if anyone's getting shirty about the hepatitis. Thank you very much. And uh, David's made some origami whales, which uh, you, can, you can buy at the back, uh, which he's going to donate uh, to Amnesty, I think, because obviously he hates, hates whales, so I guess he's giving it to humans. Uh, so fair enough. Uh, humans deserve stuff too, I guess. Not as much as whales, though. I don't know. Anyway, uh, our next performer is going to do a true story. She's another person who I, I, I spotted at a Spark London night. Uh, she's at Tree Frog Girl on Twitter and Tumblr. Uh, she, and she uh, is going to come up to the stage now. So put your hands together for Nicole Thomas, everybody. Yay! I'm seven. I'm sitting in mass at St. Viator's, and I'm having what many years later I will realize is an existential crisis. I exist. I'm alive at this moment, and all the things that could have happened to go wrong for me to not exist didn't happen, and I'm here right now, and I'm not somebody else. I was a very serious child. I think about that sometimes as an adult, where I play this game with myself, where I, I imagine if I had zigged rather than zagged, if I had had that cup of coffee rather than going home, how different things might be. Sort of like those, you know, those children's books where you have the, uh, at the very bottom of the page, you know, go to page, page 16 if you pick this, page 23 if you pick something else. And when you consider all the things in your life, you know, what, moving to different cities, the people that we have as our friends, as our lovers, all those choices that, that result in page 16 rather than page 23. And of course, it's impossible. It's impossible to know what might have happened, but I wonder sometimes. And reflecting on, on all of that, thinking about this, it made me realize, and I was a little disturbed when I discovered this about myself, 
There have only been two people in my life that I dated that I actually wanted to date from the very first moment that I met them. Usually what will happen is the gentleman will ask me out, and I'll say, no, no, thank you. And he'll say, oh, come on, it's just a drink. And I'm like, oh, okay, right, go on then. And next thing I know, I look up, and I am living in a completely different country and married to this person. (laughs) And that's not to say that I don't love them. And it's not to say that I wasn't fully committed to those people that I dated that from moment one I wasn't completely into. But there was always a part of me that was separate. There was always a part of me that when things go wrong, because they always do in every relationship, it's not always clear set, you know, it can't be, can it? There was always a part of me that was separate, that was never fully in. So going back to 1995, if you're looking back at my life, page 16 when a choice was made, I said yes to the wrong man. So 1995, the internet is a baby. Google does not exist, believe it or not. (laughs) When you want to call someone, you don't text them, you don't mobile phone, you don't call them on your mobile phone, you call them and it's their answering machine, which they go home and press a little button and a tape thing plays. Um, Kurt Cobain killed himself the year before. Clinton is in the White House. In December 95, I decide to move to Seattle because I don't have the balls to move to New York City. And I leave behind me in Las Vegas, where I just got my my master's in theater and where I grew up. I leave behind my mother, my stepfather, my sisters, a baby nephew, a father I'm not speaking to, and an ex-boyfriend. An ex-boyfriend that I was still hung up on, even though he was someone that... I didn't want to be with initially. It's very difficult to describe Joe and explain Joe when you don't know him. He, he's like a character out of some kind of... It's, it's difficult. He, he's sort of like a fat George Clooney. He's very gregarious and charming and smart and lovely and... and tenacious and has a vicious sense of anger at unreasonable things. If Richard Dawkins was in a debate with Joe, eventually Dawkins would say, all right, fine, maybe there is a God. Okay, can we just shut up now, please? Can we just stop? And I was still hung up on this person. Even though I was now living in Seattle, I wasn't fully over it. I couldn't be because we were speaking on the phone constantly. He would send me little gifts, uh, books, when he would write things at the very beginning, you're the strongest person I know, you know, I love you, my princess, you know, bullshit like that. You get kind of sucked back into the drama. And I kept being pulled into that undertow of crap. And I'd be talking to my friends at the you know, couple of jobs I had because I worked two retail jobs and had no life because I was you know, 25, 26 and broke beyond you know, whatever. And finally, my friend David at one point was like, it's fucking over. Get over it, will you already? Move on. And he was right. I needed to move on. I needed to get fucking over it. Autumn 1996. I invite my friend Jeff to go see, and why I remember the, the name of the movie, I don't know, Looking for Richard. And it's, it was at a, a theater in Capitol Hill. And beforehand, we go and we get a cup of coffee. And uh, in the door walks somebody that Jeff knows from, um, from work. And they used to work together. And he happens to be going to the film as well, and so we invite him to join us. And there's that instant spark. You know, when you, when you meet someone, there may be in your life, maybe three times if you're lucky, that crackly, immediate, I must get to know you better feeling. And there, that was going on all over the place. And then whenever that happens to me, I always think it's in my head. And then later it's lovely when you discover it's not, but it, that, that they're feeling it too. But anyway, after the film, we're walking through Capitol Hill. We, we lived sort of in the same direction, but then off. We're talking, we're laughing, but no, nothing more than that. And I turned right, 
going to First Hill, and he turned left, and that was it. And I thought about him for weeks after that. You know, this person that I just, it, was, it, was, it would have been the best meet-cute. Best meet-cute. And it just didn't quite happen. Oh, well. Thanksgiving. Jeff walks in. So, Nicole, you won't guess who I ran into on the bus. Matt. And he was asking about you. Numbers were exchanged. A date was agreed. And... We met. I look back on what I decided to wear on my first date with this gentleman. The only thing I could think to forgive myself is, is that it was the 90s and that it was Seattle. I was wearing jeans and this red shirt that was like a button-down. I, I, I looked like a lesbian. I apologize. That's not, that's not politically correct. I'm sorry. But I did not look good. Not that... Oh, I've got to stop. It, we had a nice time, and it was, we, we, we chatted, we laughed. He offered to walk me home, even though it was wildly out of his way. He walked me home. I invited him up for tea. Sat on the sofa. We were kissing, messing around. I gave him a blowjob. It seemed like the polite thing to do. And then he left. And then he didn't call. I was a little pissed off about that. And later he talked to to Jeff. Now, now Jeff's gay. And uh, when he talked to Jeff, Matt was like, I I don't know quite how I feel about, about that, the date, and when that happened. And Jeff was like, get over yourself. And not long after that, Matt called again. And he invited me to a Christmas party at his flat. And I didn't know anyone at this party, but I, I don't have a problem with that. I'm fairly good at speaking to people I don't know and flitting around to group to group. I don't need to be babysat. And it's a good thing because Matt was not giving me any attention at all. And I started to feel like, what am I doing here? Because you know, this time I made sure that I didn't, wasn't wearing the jeans and the ugly red button-down shirt. I, I looked really good. And then when I finally had enough, I was bored, I left. And Matt followed me out, and he was like, you know, look, I'm really sorry. I've been avoiding you all night. It's just I have a complication. There's someone here that I've been hanging out with. In America, hanging out is a euphemism for various activities. Um, We've been hanging out, and I need to sort that. But I'd like to sort that because I'd like to see more of you. Okay. So we, we... started hanging out, and one night in bed at his place, we were, we were talking, and we, he would like to do this thing where we would trace a picture on each other's back, and you'd have to try to guess what it was or words, and he stopped, and he said, I need, I need to read you. Can I share something with you? Yeah, sure, and he read me a letter that his father had written him the day that he had been born. And it was what you would imagine it would be. It was sweet and lovely. And this incredibly intimate thing that he shared with me. And it scared the absolute shit out of me. I came home um, the next day to my apartment. And there was a message on the machine from Joe. And he left it at 2 in the morning. And you could hear it in his voice that he knew that my not being there at two in the morning meant that I was somewhere else. And that made me feel really good. But then later, I spoke to him. And he said, you know, look, I've been thinking, uh, I'd really like for us to work on being together later. I don't know what the fuck that means, but we're, we're working toward being together later. And I felt this drop in the pit of my stomach. I, I heard myself saying yes. He was moving to Los Angeles. I was planning on applying to the American Film Institute. You know, of course, the odds of me getting in are ridiculously low. What are the odds of me getting into this graduate school? 
But he was like, okay, you know what? If you don't get in, you'll move there anyway. So part of me, I'm thinking, okay, what, what am I doing? Where am I going? What am I doing? I'm saying yes. I was saying yes. I was saying yes. So I called Matt. And I said, you know, we, we need to talk. And he, of course, we all know what that is. That's a euphemism. We need to talk. And we agreed to meet at a bar in Capitol Hill that I didn't know. And I was waiting. And I was waiting, and I was waiting, and I was waiting. And he wasn't there. And I, I, I called and checked my messages. And it turned out I messed up. I was waiting in the wrong bar. I was waiting in a bar for an hour to break up with a man I didn't want to break up with. So I I ran to the right bar, and he was there waiting in a bar for me to break up with him. And we did. I I, I had the talk, and he was fine. He was lovely about it. And going forward, you know, we would meet sometimes for a drink, and he'd, you know, make jokes and how we could maybe, you know, still sleep together while we, you know, weren't together anymore. But ha, 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 no, we're not going to do that. And uh, then I, I did get into the AFI, and I left Seattle. And before I, I, I left, he came into the shop to see me where I, I worked before I left. And he uh, made some jokes saying, oh, you're going to be the one that got away. And I made some joke back because he was always a bit of a player. And he said, Nicole, I don't, do you think I read that letter to everybody? So I moved to L.A., and within a month, I discover that Joe, during this time that we were working toward being together, was also actively with somebody else. And I, if I had left things with Matt there, he would always have that like, little memory in the back of his head where maybe I'm that cool chick that you know things could have been one thing, wouldn't it? but no, I called him crying. I called him crying, sound like some psychotic, I don't know what, about, oh, I can't remember. And I just must have sounded completely pathetic. It took me a few years to finally get Joe out of my system. It took me a few years to finally break free of of that. And for a while, after we weren't dating any longer, we were still able to be friends. But then uh, that even had to stop. And um, I wish him all the best. We just aren't very good for each other. And I know that if Aristotle was sitting out there in the audience right now, in terms of tragedy, this is probably a negative six. I mean, nobody's died. No eyes have been gouged out. I mean, it's, it's pretty, I know, it's pretty kind of low. But I guess, I guess it would have been nice to be properly in love with someone in my 20s. That's something I would have liked to experience. Thank you. Okay, so our last performer for the second act tonight, uh, you, well, you may have heard her uh, podcast, Answer Me This. She also has a podcast called Sound Woman, and you can uh, find her at www.helenzoltzman.com. So put your hands together, everybody, for Helen Zoltzman. And I believe somebody else is going to come up to the stage and help her out with some music. I pressed gang Jay Foreman into providing some tragic backing music. Uh, Jay had a very tragic beginning. Uh, He came out of the womb uh, covered in slime and uh, didn't have a belly button. He just had this sort of withered cord and uh, couldn't couldn't walk, couldn't speak. Um, Look at me now. Look at him now. Jay Foreman, everybody. Uh, Uh, Looking for a cable. Isn't this fun? Do you want me to try this one? Do you want me to carry on through your whole life? How old are you? Well, I think we're okay now. Oh, okay, cool. I want some uh, sad music. I want sad music, but, but um, I'll warn you. I'll warn you when the sadness so you, you about to begin. Give you a signal when yeah. you want the sad right. music to start. Yeah, okay. I'll give you this signal. <laughs> um, that's my tragic face. Right. So I'm uh, not allowed at funerals anymore. Uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, a historical event that is, it is a series of tragic beginnings and not really any middles or ends. Um, it took place in 1846... It was not one of uh, Britain's greatest foreign policy uh, achievements. And weirdly, the philosopher David Hume was there for the whole thing. 
so this is David Hume's eyewitness account, and all the facts are true. I have updated the vernacular for a modern audience. Um, so uh, take it away, oh, yeah. Jay. Yeah. Dear Diary. Is it okay to call you Diary? I don't really feel like we're on first name terms. Um, I wish someone had warned me that philosophy was not a growth industry. I've been really struggling to get a toehold and have had to take a job in the military uh, to make ends meet. I'm now the secretary to General James St. Clair and will be accompanying him on a very important mission to give the French a bloody good scare by invading Canada. I've assembled everything we could possibly need to invade Canada. We've got maps of Canada, we've got experts in Canadian dialect, and we've even got Mexican dollars to buy things in Canada with. We sail tomorrow. I'm so excited, I can't sleep. Watch out, Canada. Dear diary, are we nearly there yet? Are we nearly there yet? Are we nearly there yet? Dear diary, we have landed in Jersey. Only 3,000 miles out. Better luck tomorrow. Dear diary, still in Jersey. 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 I pray to local god Bergerac that we set sail soon. Dear diary, still in Jersey. Dear diary, still in Jersey. Dear diary, still in Jersey. Dear diary, back in England. We've learnt a lot, e.g. not to aim for Jersey when you're trying to get to Canada. We won't make that mistake again. Tomorrow we set sail again for Canada. Dear diary, we have landed on the Isle of Wight. Only 3,000 miles out. Again. Dear diary, still on the Isle of Wight. 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 Note to self, do not visit the Isle of Wight before the invention of crazy golf. <laughs> Dear diary, still on the Isle of Wight. General St. Clair has been building a massive sandcastle for eight days just so that he can invade something successfully. Dear diary, back in England. But watch out, Canada. We'll get you yet. Third time's a charm. Dear diary, our expedition is facing an even greater enemy than the French, even greater than Canada, even greater than the Isle of Wight. Adverse wind conditions. Canada, we apologise for the delay in invading you. Please bear with us while we await some, some better invading conditions. Dear diary, it's still too windy to invade Canada. My plant pot fell off the windowsill yesterday. And now they're saying that it's too late in the year to invade Canada anyway, because once we got there, we'd freeze to death. It's not ideal conditions for invading. Uh, so you know what, diary? Screw Canada. We've got an alternate plan, an even more brilliant scheme for sticking it to those Frenchies. We are going to invade... France! Yeah. We set sail tomorrow. Good thing I hung on to all the maps of Canada and Mexican dollars, because we're sure to need those when we invade France, or when we're in France, or en France, as uh, I should get used to saying. Uh, we've got all the guys back together again as well. Half of them have died of scurvy, but they'll get over it. British upper lip and all that. Dear diary, we have landed in France, zero miles out. Nailed it. Now all we have to do is invade a bit of it, then piss off home. It's, it's not been easy so far. Did you know it's rather difficult to navigate around France when you're just using a map of Canada? We were aiming for Vancouver Aquarium, but we seem to have ended up in Brittany, outside a small town called Lorient. So we've decided to invade Lorient. It shouldn't be too difficult. And then we can carry on looking for the aquarium. I've heard they've got beluga whales there. 
dear diary, hit a few snags on our way to giving Lorient a bloody good ass-kicking. Firstly, all of the road signs are in French, so we don't know where we're going. Secondly, they've brought in reinforcements. We've got about 8,000 troops, if you include the people who've died of scurvy. Uh, but my calculations suggest they may have 192,000 more than that. Thirdly, it's too muddy. Uh, would Henry V have squelched his way onto the breach, dear friends? No! And therefore, we have decided to retreat and not invade Lorient. The invasion's off again. Dear diary, even not invading a place is extremely dangerous. As we retreated from Lorient, we came face to face with thousands of soldiers, but we opened up all of our guns and all of our cannons on them and killed them all. Huzzah! Showed them what's what, what, what. Dear diary, turns out that all those guys we killed last night were on our own team. Better call it a draw. And uh, the last thing that is in David Hume's diary is um, a postcard uh, from the mayor of Lorient. He says, hi, Dave. Uh, this'll make you lol. I shut myself when I heard of all of your guns and cannon going off. Uh, so we came out to surrender to you. But you'd already fucked off. <laughs> Winky emoticon. Hashtag sorry, not sorry. Hashtag psych. <laughs> so that was the end of that military expedition. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jay Foreman, as well. Right, so we're going to have a break now. Uh, before we do, I'll just remind you that, uh, that Stand Up Tragedy is also a podcast, and Helen has lots of podcasts, and so there's also going to be some podcast talk later. So podcasts... Podcast, podcast, it's almost like that diary again. So, uh, get some drinks uh, and that sort of thing uh, if, you, if you want to. Uh, go to the toilet if you want to. Uh, and uh, yeah, see you back here in 15 minutes or so. Make friends with some tragedy by friending us on Facebook or following us at Stand Up For Tragedy on Twitter. Our website is www.standuptragedy.co.uk And we're back with another live night of Tragic Variety on the 13th of February where we'll be exploring tragic love at the Dogstar in Brixton. Share your tragedies with us on Twitter using the hashtag TragicLove. And for now, the tragedy is over. This podcast was produced by Stephen Harvey with music from Sam Wilkinson and George Buffett.